Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. After the Bible reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond by saying, thanks be to God. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the, se- the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, City Church. It's a pleasure to be with us all again this morning. Um, special thanks, or no thanks, to the leadership of the church for this opportunity. <clears throat> so I feel a double challenge, right? Um, last week, when Francis started the sermon, I was, you know, I was on my seat and I was like, no, 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 please just don't go into my territory, right? Because typically I feel... You know, when you, when you start a sermon series, I always like starting a sermon series because I can see everything and send everybody else, you know, but this time I was on the receiving end, so I had to go back home you know, and, and redo again. So if you feel this morning like um, I'm sounding like Francis, let me say, say it how Ibukun says it. He slid me, so you should, should talk to him. Um, but on a more serious note... Um, I feel a serious challenge this morning because this, again, is a story we all know, right? It's, it's on our list of um, Sunday school sermons, um, stories. So you have David and Goliath, you have Daniel and the lions, you have Jesus and the wi- three wise men, who are not three, by the way. The Bible doesn't tell us they are three, right? And then you have this one as well. Um, but I'd like to challenge us this morning, right off the bat, that if this story feels still, if it feels old, if it feels boring to you, and maybe it's because we have lost the wonder. Maybe it's because the, the, the good news of Christmas doesn't appeal to us anymore. So I'd like to um, ask us all to pray this morning. Um, 
let's bow down our heads and just pray and ask the Lord to gift us with third hearts and with eyes ever ready to see the wonder in these verses. Lord Jesus, we thank you, O God, for your coming. We thank you, Lord, for what Christmas means to us. We thank you, O God, for um, invading our space and our time and coming, O God, into the midst of all of our mess with the good news of your redemption for, and your love for us. Lord, we ask as we look over these verses this morning, O oh God, that we'll be propelled, O oh God, to bow down, Lord, in worship, O oh God, and to go out, Lord, on mission. Amen. And that, Lord, will be all that you've called us to be in Jesus' name. So we've been looking at, we um, started last week looking at this new series called Advent in Luke. And it's really about the coming of Christ plus um, Justice. We've also been looking at justice this month, and we've been looking at how the coming of Christ, his revelation to us during Christmas, affects how we live our lives and how we um, treat the people around us. So last week, Francis showed us um, the stigma of barrenness in our society and how people relate to barren women and how in Christ that has been redeemed and how we should treat um, those who are without children in our society. Today, we'll be looking at I call the advent for the unlikely. Um, we're looking at unlikely people, right? Um, people we typically call blue-collar workers or people at the lower rung of the industrial ladder and see how the coming of Christ relates to how we should treat those people. So Jumoke has read the passage for us. And um, three things stand out to me, um, which I'd like to show us this morning. So in this passage, we see unlikely recipients we see an unlikely news, and we see an unlikely cereal, right? Pastor Femi is smiling. Yeah. Yes, I'm, 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 I'm doing good. <laughs> All right, so we see unlikely recipients. It may not appear to us at first how ill-suited these people are to receive this news. So we see in verse 1, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Again, Francis showed us last week that this story was, um, th this book, the book of Luke, was written to Theophilus, an excellent person. And just picture yourself as Theophilus, right? You've heard about this guy who is called Jesus, who is going to change the world and who is going to um, do everything that has been promised by the prophets of old. And then he's coming, and the first people he chooses to appear to are shepherds. And there are three things, again, Another three that, that we see from these unlikely recipients to help us appreciate how unlikely they were. First, we see their occupation. So it says that they were keeping sheep. Shepherds keep sheep, right? And this is not a compliment. By the way, when the Bible says that we are God's sheep, God is not saying how nice and tender and you know, fluffy you are or whatever. This shows the kind of work they were doing. This was physically draining work. This was tasking. It required a lot of patience. It required a lot of attentiveness. Oh my God, this sheep is going to run off into the road. I'm sure you've seen all of them when you drive past. And you are coming full on speed. And they are still coming right to you. They are looking at your nice car and all of that. They, they want to be bashed. They don't know it, but they want to be bashed. You know, so this shepherds, this, this was a very tasking work. This was physically draining. Nobody wanted to do the kind of labor, you know, that, that these guys were doing. Um, and it's, again, it was important work, right? But nobody really wanted to do it. It, it reminds me of a conversation um, I, I was part of, well, not part of, but I overheard 
of a relative of mine and her father. So the relative had this, um, they had a really nice domestic help, someone who was very kind and all that, who was helping them. She was much younger at the time, she was about two or three years old. Um, so she, because she had taken to this person, because she had taken to this domestic help, she told her father one day, ah, oh, daddy, I want to grow up and be like this person. And the first thing father said was like, God forbid, in Jesus' name, it's not your portion. Right? Because the work was important. She was helping out with the child, taking care of the child, but nobody really wants their child to grow up and be a domestic help or be a gardener or whatever. So this was very tasking work. And one commentator even says that, you know, shepherds were so much at the, at the lower rung of the ladder that they couldn't even be legal witnesses in cases. So there were people, but they weren't people for the purpose of doing important things. But then again, we also see that they are unlikely because of where they lived and the location of their work. So it says that they were living out in the fields nearby. They were close enough, but yet far enough to be out there. And there are people like that all around us whose work we appreciate, people who we feel, yes, this is important work, but we really don't want to be around them. We don't want to have them around. Um, it reminds me again of, of this term for one of our housing um, from the colonial era called boys' quarters, right? And the whole idea behind boys' quarters is that there were helps and there were um, manservants for the, for the colonial masters who were important to the work that they were doing, right? But they didn't want them in their house. So they built a separate place for them out in, in, you know, in the compound where they could live. And so they were close enough to be called upon, but they were far away enough not to be part of the household. And this, is, this was, again, um, the same thing with the shepherd. So we see, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11, when Samuel comes to anoint the sons of Jesse, or the son of Jesse, David, Samuel says, where is the last child? And they say, he's out there in the fields. Go and call him, right? So he was close enough to be called, but was also far enough away not to mess up um, the appearance of the household. And then we also see again how unlikely they were, the time of their work. So it says that they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. Again, right, things have changed. There's a lot of technology right now, so people work in shifts and all that. But typically, right, generally, if you have to work at night, it's not because you really want to work at night. It's because the, the conditions of work demand that you work at night, right? So you can think of people here like security guards, people in emergency services, firemen, call center workers, you know, people who really don't want to be up at 2 a.m. receiving your phone call, but they don't have a choice, right? That's, that's the job that's available to them. So you can imagine all that's going on in, in Theophilus's mind, right? He's reading this, and he's thinking about this king who is coming, who chooses, rather than go out, you know, to um, the popular people of the time, he chooses to reveal himself to shepherds. If you remember, Francis again showed us last week that this guy was called most excellent Theophilus. And it wasn't just, you know, like we would use in, in slang now and say, hey, chief, chairman, whatever. When the person is not really chief or chairman, you know, we're just psyching ourselves. This actually was a very excellent guy. And we know again because Luke uses this term, most excellent, fill in the blank, 
in the book of Acts for Festus and for Felix when Paul appears in front of them. So this, this was someone who was very, very important. And this, what this shows us is that the first thing that comes to your mind is that this is not a recipe for starting a global movement. This is not how you reach the high and mighty. This is not how, this is not a good PR strategy at all. If you want to um, make a very huge impact in society, conventional wisdom tells us, hire the best PR agency, make a very loud statement to people in Lekki and in Koyi and VI and all of those places. And that's how you make it big, right? But Jesus is revealed to shepherds. And it tells us something worth considering, namely that these unlikely recipients, these people who people don't typically identify with, have infinite worth and value, not because of their line of work or their production value, but because they are imago Dei, image bearers of God. Right? And that's the first thing that stands out in this passage. We, we, we call these people blue-collar workers in our society or, or whatever other term we would want to employ to, to describe them. And again, because of, of work and technology and how things have changed slightly, we might not appreciate um, that term. So I looked up a guy. Um, his name is called Ken Duncan. He's a pastor whose um, research and ministry interest focuses on a blue-collar theology of work. And he says a blue-collar worker is someone whose work is characterized by three things, mostly three things. Again, these are broad descriptions, but I think it's very apt here. So he says, one, their work is characterized mostly by physical labor, right? It's mostly um, physical exertion. They are not doing mentally tasking work as it were. They're not sitting in front of a desk or computer typing away all day. They are mostly out in the field doing physically exerting work. Two, their work is characterized by a low rate of pay, right? They, they are just either at the minimum wage or almost getting there. And then lastly, minimum educational requirements. So th there isn't a lot you know, that you need to have learned to be able to do this kind of work. You just have to be able to do the work. You know, whereas a, a, a white-collar job would be, uh, a white-collar worker would be someone who is required to mostly mentally exert himself. He's solving complex tasks and all of that. He's, um, he has a specific um, um, salary structure or compensation structure and has specific educational requirements for that position as well. So in this category with people like your security guards, firefighters, caregivers, nannies, domestic helps, gardeners, farmers, drivers, electricians, plumbers, cleaners, office clerks, hairdressers, etc. And you know, as I was even thinking, it occurred to me that there are many people you would even call colorless workers as well who don't even have, you know, they don't even fit into this category as well. So you can think of people um, who are the lower rung of other types of acceptable jobs. You can think of people who are the lower rung of the police force, or people who are, who are the lower rung of military service as well. And so what characterizes these people mostly is that they have little to no decision-making power in their line of work. They have no control over their conditions of work. They have no control over the, the, the time of work as they were. And if you choose to rebel, God help you, you're out the door because it's a buyer's market. There are lots of people who are looking for jobs. There are lots of people who are seeking employment. And, you know, so if, if you rebel, nobody's really going to um, care also. 
um, this past week I was in a meeting in, in the um, building where my office is located and we had to review the budget for this year and also that for next year and see how um, we could make things work. And so we came to this line item which was about the pay of the security guards in, 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 the, in the building. And so there were obviously people had seen the number. It's going from this number to this other number, 25% increase. And everybody was like, no, 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 no. And so when we asked why, why that was so, they said, okay, well, first of all, the company had written asking for an increase because there hadn't been an increase in about three years for, for, for the salaries of these people. And then when they actually did break it down, how much they were going to be earning, how much they are earning currently, and how much it would even translate to even if we paid the 25%, it was, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. But then those of us that were there, a lot of people who were there were saying, oh, well, my pay has been cut, my this has been that, X, you know, and the economy is bad and all of that, which sounds plausible, which sounds like a good argument, except that you are still earning a very, very good salary. You are still having your bonuses. You are still having all those compensations. And, you know, I, I tried what I could, but another guy spoke as well, but everybody came down to, well, this is going to cost too much and all of that, and by the way, the market rate is even lower than this, you know. And so it came down to that decision and it was one increasing their salary. And those guys would still have to continue doing their jobs because there isn't any job. And if they, you know, uh, check out, they're going to get replaced as well. So these were the kind of people that the shepherds were. These were the kind of people that they were there on that night just thinking about how miserable their lives have been and all of that, and just basically um, resigned to their fate. So you can imagine all the things happening in their mind. It was going to be another normal day. It was going to be a terrible day. Probably some guy was thinking about the quarrel he had just had with his wife over not having enough money to drop at home for soup and all of those kinds of things. And then we see in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of God shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, this is, this is important, and it should give us pause to reflect. Every time a person saw God in the Bible or encountered his glory, they were always on their face in dread or worship. So John tells us in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, that I fell at his feet as though dead. Isaiah cries in utter dismay in Isaiah 6, verse 1, where he says, Woe to me, I am ruined. And these men are terrified. You know why? Because contact with the glory of God showed them their sinfulness. The Bible doesn't romanticize blue-collar workers. It doesn't romanticize any person. It doesn't say that, oh, because you are vulnerable, because you are this, well, so maybe God is going to cut you some slack. Every person, every person apart from the grace of God is a sinner. And every person apart from the grace of God ought to be judged and condemned. So there's nothing inherently valuable or nothing inherently holy about being marginalized, just as there isn't anything inherently holy about not being marginalized. Right? So God is not saying this, was, this wasn't some emotional um, um, whatever on, on God's part. This was God moving in love, stepping out and revealing himself to them. And so these people were terrified. They probably 
seeing that, wow, contact with the glory of God, showing them their sinfulness, showing them how much they needed the grace of God. But rather than God condemning them, what does he do instead? He shows them, he tells them good news for all people. And what is that good news? That good news is the gospel, simply. That the gospel is not for a certain class of people. The gospel is not for people who are refined in their intellect, people who are skilled and gifted and who everybody wants. The gospel is for every strata of society. The gospel is for everyone without regard for class, age, gender, sexual orientation, or whatever. But the gospel is not just good news like that, right? It's not just, you would have expected that if God was revealing himself to these people, it would have been to bail them out of their economic condition. Rather, he tells them that they need a savior. So he says in verse 11, that today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The greatest need of our lives is not economic deliverance. First of all, the greatest need of our lives is deliverance from sin. And that is what, that is what this passage reveals. And so I came across an article this past, um, recently from Time Magazine, a 2014 article. It's titled Silent Night, the story of the World War I Christmas Truce of 1914. And it's about a spectacular, little-known event in history where um, British, Belgian, and French forces during the First World War actually had a truce with the German counterparts on Christmas Day in 1914. I'm just going to read a little bit of the article to us. So most accounts suggest the truce began with carols singing from the trenches on Christmas Eve. A beautiful moonlit night, frost on the ground, white almost everywhere. First, the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours, until we started up, O come, all ye faithful. The Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adeste Fidelis. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. The next morning, in some places, German soldiers emerged from their trenches, calling out, Merry Christmas in English. Allied soldiers came out warily to greet them. In others, Germans held up signs reading, you no shoot, we no shoot. <laughs> Over the course of the day, troops exchanged gifts of cigarettes, food, buttons, and hats. The Christmas truce also allowed both sides to finally bury their dead comrades, whose bodies had lain for weeks on no man's land, the ground between opposing trenches. The phenomenon took different form forms across the Western Front. One account mentions a British soldier having his hair cut by his pre-war German barber. Another talks of a pig roast. Several mention impromptu kickabouts with makeshift soccer balls. Although contrary to popular legend, it seems unlikely that there were any organized matches. So there was a truce right in the middle of a war. These two people fighting, and then there was a ceasefire to celebrate Christmas. Of course, the truce didn't last because World War I didn't end until 1918. And then also, it wasn't the war to end all wars because there was a second world war, actually. So this truce failed. But this is not the kind of truce God offers in Christ, in the gospel, through Christmas. Christmas is God's offer of armistice to a guilty, treasonous, and rebellious world. 
is a peace offer for death-deserving cool plotters. It is the commencement of the ultimate act of justice, Christ's death and resurrection, to end the ultimate act of injustice, our sin and rebellion. I like this quote by someone named John Piper. It says, meditate on the fact that we need a savior. Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. If you don't need a savior, you don't need Christmas. Christmas would not have its intended effect until we feel desperately the need for a savior. And so God is not about to, to pat these people on the back and say, yes, I understand your challenges, I understand your condition. Well, I give you a clean pass. Both the marginalized and both those who are marginalizing were people in need of a saving work of God. And that is what we must realize, right? The, the media always paints to us that, oh, well, yes, so this person is vulnerable, and then perhaps he gets a clean pass because of what he did. But God says, no, his action, his standard of holiness is same for everyone, regardless of where we are found and regardless of our social um, level in society. And this we must realize. This is what Christmas tells us. This is God coming to us, to sinful rebels, and offering us peace in Christ. And so we see that these people were unlikely recipients, the, 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 the most unlikely recipients of the news. And yet, God brings them unlikely news. But then he doesn't just stop there. He sends them an unlikely savior. So we see in verse 12 that the savior God sends is wonder of wonders, a baby. We see in verse 16 again, the baby was lying there in the manger. And again, it probably wouldn't appear to us at, at first glance, except that at the beginning of that chapter in, in, in chapter 2, Luke talks about a man named Caesar Augustus, right? And this man was so powerful that he actually called a census of the entire world. Just take a breath and, and think about that for a few minutes. Someone actually so powerful that this guy summons everybody in the world to actually go to where you were born. I'm sure many of us haven't been to where we were born in, in God knows how long. And imagine someone just wakes up tomorrow morning and says, find your way out of Lagos, make sure you report there next week, and make sure you are counted. That is how powerful this person was. The name Augustus means venerable one, majestic one. He was so powerful, but yet he was not a savior. And that is what we find in the world, that people may be powerful, people may be huge, people may be influential, but they cannot really deliver us. They cannot give us the kind of lasting deliverance that we need. And so God, imagine Theophilus reading this. He's, he's most excellent. He's, he's, he's a very influential person. And he's expecting that this Savior is going to reveal himself through some majestic, wonderful, newsworthy way. But instead, he comes as a baby. But then he doesn't just stop at that. He comes as a baby, lying in a manger, helpless. I remember um, the cartoon about Hercules. Um, and some of you may have heard this. Hercules is from Greek mythology. He's, he's one of the gods. And when Hercules was born, I think he's son to Zeus and someone else. I can't remember. Hercules was born, lying there in the manger, 
and some devious people are trying to take him out because for some reason they can see into the future and see that this guy is going to be really strong, is going to cause a lot of whatever, and they didn't want that. So what they do? They come to, to his cradle, cradle by the way, trying to um, kill him. But Hercules, he's a baby, has just been born. He's so strong that he snaps these people and kills them, right? He's a baby. But Jesus doesn't come as Hercules. Jesus actually comes as a baby. He's lying there in a manger. He comes helpless. He doesn't come showing his strength and his bravado and saying, I created the world. Um, um, I, 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 I named all the oceans and all, all whatever. He doesn't come saying that. He doesn't come reeling out his credentials. He comes as a baby lying there helpless in a manger. In a manger, again, we know what a manger is, right? A manger is a feeding trough for animals. And so Jesus comes validating these people's occupation. He doesn't come to throw a stone at them, to tell them how worthless they are. He comes instead in their form, in their manner, revealing himself to them. But then we must realize that he doesn't come because they want him or they pleaded for him or they begged him to come or they invited him, right? Because we see in verse 14 that it says, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This was God himself initiating his act of love and redemption to the world. He didn't come because he was wanted. He came because of his love for the world and his desire to reconcile people to himself. He planned this entire thing. Christmas is not us realizing how much we need God and saying, God, please come. And then God says, oh, well, I'm going to come. No, Christmas is God himself initiating his act of redemption to the world. I like this quote. This is another quote. Pardon me, there are lots of quotes today. Um, but, but I like this quote because it helps us really think and reflect on the fact that God actually planned this entire thing. He came to reconcile us to himself. So he says, it's another quote from someone. He says, and in order for Jesus to suffer and die, he had to plan way ahead of time because he couldn't die. He was immortal. He didn't have a body, and yet he wanted to die for you. So he planned the whole thing by clothing himself with a body so that he could get hungry and get weary and have sore feet. The incarnation of Jesus is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails, the preparation of a brow for thorns pressed through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whips. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed to have fleshy cheeks so that Judas could have a place to kiss and there will be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. This was what God did for us in Christmas, right? Very often we disconnect Christmas from Easter, but Christmas is actually the beginning of what finally ends at Easter, that God himself comes to the world as a helpless child to reconcile all of us to himself. Amen. And so, brothers and sisters, this is Advent for the unlikely. 
It's the story of unlikely recipients of an unlikely news about an unlikely savior. It's the story of a great and just God who has sovereignly acted to bring unjust and unworthy sinners to himself by performing the ultimate act of justice, coming, as Luther said, as the son of man, so that we can become the sons of God. And you say, fantastic, Emmanuel, thank you. I didn't see all these things in the passage before. So what does this mean for me? I'm glad you asked. The first thing it means for us is that we must be people of justice. We can't just pay lip service to justice. We must actually do justice. And, and, and you ask, what is justice? I like this definition by someone named Tim Keller. He says, justice is not only the righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially towards the poor and vulnerable. I like the way uh, Mr. Olojolu defined earlier when, when he was talking, the way he put it. He says, we are constrained by the love of God. If God, who created the world, could come and reveal himself to unworthy shepherds without taking, um, without minding whether they wanted it or not, without minding whether they deserved it or not, brothers and sisters, we cannot do less. We cannot do less but act for justice in the world. Secondly, we must validate blue-collar workers, the unskilled and the marginalized among us. Their value is not first and foremost because of what they bring to the table and what they offer us and how they make our company's budgets patter. It is first and foremost because they are image bearers. They are people of God. They are created in the image of God. So the value of their work is not the societal prominence it brings to them, but it's in the fulfillment of the creation mandate. When God tells to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion. Every noble work is in fulfillment of that creation mandate that God gives us. Yeah. And so we must validate them. Yeah. We must, if, if you have people around you, cleaners in your office, call them every once in a while and appreciate them for what they do because they're actually adding value to your services and to your company. Yeah. Also, I want to encourage those of us who are in positions of authority. Let us speak out for them. If you, if you find yourself in places where you are on a budget committee or you're you in a place to make decisions that affect these people, speak out for them. Do not let your decisions, first of all, be motivated by their earnings or by the benefits that they bring, or solely in terms of the market rate, because first of all, the market rate is not always fair, right? So we, we mustn't always define how we approach these people in terms of, well, what are they paying there? So, I pay the bare minimum as well. We must do what we can to speak out for those who are vulnerable. Also, I want to encourage the parents among us. Let's give our children a God-sized vision of work and the dignity of every human being. People have value not because of what they create first and foremost, but because they are children of God. You might not want your child to grow up as a gardener. Nobody probably wants their child to be a gardener. But you can give your child value and appreciation of what the gardener actually does. So that the child may not actually be a gardener or end up being a gardener, right? But he actually appreciates what the gardener or whomever it is brings to the table. And they are watching us. The children, our children are watching us by how we treat these people. And lastly... We must work for justice. 
You say, oh, well, yeah, you said it before. Yes, I'm saying it again. Because there is no such thing as a faith that is not social. And so I like the way Pastor Fermi says it. He says, faith equals justification plus works. There is, we are saved by faith, but by faith that does not remain alone. It's a faith that always results in something that people around us can see. And so God is entirely motivated or is desirous of justice. The entire book of Amos is written to a nation that was unjust and people were marginalizing people. The rich were oppressing the poor. And God was condemning those acts. To know God is to be just. I like the way Tim Keller defines it again. You might be struggling. Okay, so how exactly are we going to do justice? Well, so come on Wednesday and come to Theology Day. Pastor Fermi will tell us how. <laughs> but I like, I like again, um, so Tim Keller helps us with doing this. He, say, he talks about three levels of doing justice, right? He talks about relief. He talks about development and social reform. So relief basically would be you need, um, I, I don't have 10,000 naira. You give the person 10,000 naira to help take care of whatever needs the person has. Development is you set the person on a course to actually better his or herself, right? Person goes to school or whatever skills the person needs to acquire. Then social reform is you're actually rearranging the entire order of things in society. And we might not be in a place to do social reform, but each and every one of us is in a place to offer relief or development. We might not be in a place to give development, but each and every one of us is in a place to offer relief. We cannot sit down, we cannot sit by and just watch, you know, and say, oh, well, things are tough. The society is tough. Things are hard and all of that. We are people of a God who left his throne, who came down into time so that each and every one of us can be reconciled to him. We must do justice. I want to read for us from Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3. This is where... Jesus Christ, when he comes of age in, in, in flesh, walks into the synagogue and reads this to the people and says that this scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing. Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Jesus Christ came to do all these things. And we must be people who go out spreading the fragrance of his glory, revealed in reconciling us, unjust people, to a just God. I like the last verse of Hark the Herald Angel Sing, and I commend it to us. He says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. 
Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. He laid his glory by so that man no more may die. And we must be people who walk in that same light in the world around us. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you because you reveal yourself through the coming of Christ by offering peace to us treasonous rebels. You commence the ultimate act of justice in the coming of Christ to do away with the ultimate act of injustice, our sin and our rebellion. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to appreciate this again afresh and that this will characterize our lives as we work for justice in our world, as we work for the marginalized and the oppressed. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.